The 24 Shades of Blue Cold Case Edition series is about real ongoing homicide investigations. The following conversation may be disturbing to some people and is not recommended for all ages. Viewer discretion is advised. Welcome to 24 Shades of Blue Cold Case Edition. I'm your host, Andy O'Brien. On June 24, 1994, at approximately 5.45 p.m., Toronto police responded to a 911 call on LaSalle's Boulevard near Chaplin Crescent. 80-year-old Margaret McDonald was found inside her residence suffering from wounds inflicted from what could only be described later as a sadistic murder. Margaret was a daughter, mother, and grandmother who was loved and adored by her family. Her granddaughter Susan spoke with us and Margaret's son-in-law Ron sent us a written statement to help us get an understanding of who Margaret was in her lifetime. I'll start off by reading Ron's words. I agreed to share my fond remembrance of Margaret, Peg McDonald, on the off chance that someone listening to this production might assist the Toronto police in their continuing efforts to identify her cowardly murderer. This sharing also brings forth the ever-present visceral sadness that I and other family members know when we recall this senseless, unprovoked murder of a loving, lovely lady. Peg was truly remarkable and generous woman who was a pillar of fundraising for charities in Toronto. Born in 1914, she was the eldest of a loving, hardworking family in Peterborough, Ontario. In 1929, the nadir of the Great Depression, her father decided she must quit school before completing her 10th year of high school, get a job, and help support her parents and younger siblings. Her high school principal pleaded with her father to allow her to at least complete the school year, but this was not to be, as the financial needs at home were too great. Peg sorely regretted leaving school prematurely, as having a, at least a high school diploma or higher was as critical then as it is now. Her effervescent charm and attractive appearance captivated many, including a junior accountant, Les McDonald. He was courtly, but a dour Scot who was socially reticent. It was Peg who added joy, charm, and vitality, not only to their family, but also significantly to an ever-increasing business and social life. They were a good team such that together Les earned the position of senior partner of Price Waterhouse Canada. So when I think of my grandmother, we always called her Granny, and uh, she went by the name Peg or Peggy. Um, so hearing Margaret McDonald, I have to think a little bit. Um, and of course, I only knew her sort of in the role of granddaughter and what we knew about her early life. Some she told us, some we heard from other family members, but she was the eldest child of five and they were fairly um, low income, poor. She met her future husband when she was only 18 and her father wouldn't let her marry until she was 21. And um, she moved to Toronto and sort of from small town Peterborough, moved to Toronto. And uh, she sort of had to evolve into, I don't want to say a society matron, but very definitely kind of in the 30s in Toronto. It was still very much old Toronto. When I think about that, that when she was growing up, Toronto looked really, really different than it did in the 90s or 80s even. It was much smaller. It was predominantly white. Um, she sort of ran in the professional class, sort of middle upper class. 
and um, you know really came into a, a, a lifestyle where she had a cook and a nurse and you know a lot of help around the home lived in a beautiful home that um, she hadn't been exposed to prior to that so for her and I think this is important just in understanding her you know, she would never understand my choices while why I might choose to go off backpacking with, you know, kind of just my the stuff in my knapsack sort of thing. Why wasn't I picking, you know, a lovely cruise with all the luxuries or all the amenities? And somebody once said to me that, well, she didn't always have those privileges. Um, you grew up with them, but she didn't have them. So she can't understand why you would willingly not take them or not choose them. And I think sometimes that was a bit of a challenge between us. But um, she certainly, I think she she really, she did a great job as a, you know, if I'm going to say a society matron, that she loved to entertain. She was very proud of you know, setting a beautiful table and, oh, having lovely linens and, you know, silver polished and things that today, both young and even older people, you know, they're just not as important having a formal dining room and serving a big Sunday dinner. But these things were important to her as were her family, really. Um, and then also as I got older and certainly when we were little, we lived right around the corner from her, um, so it was just sort of a block away, and you could we were allowed to walk over there on our own if she knew we were coming. So she was definitely present, um, but she was always fun, like she was the fun grandmother. And um, I say that sort of in contrast. My mom's mother was just older and had five times as many grandkids and lived in the state. So we did, we saw her maybe twice a year, you know, it was just different. And um, I, th I think when I say fun, my sister and I were actually just talking about some memories and when she would babysit us and we'd ended up in food fights in the kitchen or um, she insisted on trying my sister's pogo stick that she got for her ninth birthday and, um, you know, got a few jumps in before falling off and, you know, ripping her stockings kind of thing. Or she was like, she was this fantastic ping pong player and we'd have these tournaments in our basement and she would like, she loved like just beating, especially like my dad and the boys, you know, they're total thrill in terms of winning and she was really really good and she actually she played she played badminton and golf um not so much in her very later years but she certainly and she was competitive but she was fun and she was really kind of lively and I guess when I was well, I'm trying to think how old she would have been when I was born but you know she was only in her 50s and had been widowed quite young and so yeah like you know, sort of in her early 60s, she was she was still <laughs> still doing everything. And um, I think I'll always remember that.
Sitting with me today in our studio to discuss the case, we have Acting Detective Sergeant Steve Smith from Toronto Homicide. How are you, Steve? Great, Andy. How are you? Good. Thank you very much for being here. Um, as always, uh, it's so important that we talk about these and get them out to the public in terms of what is happening with these murders and how can we solve them. First case uh, today, Margaret. Please describe Margaret's day uh, before she was murdered. Andy, this is uh, one of the most horrific homicides that we have. I mean, other than some of the children homicides, this homicide struck a chord with our investigators. It was an 80-year-old woman, and she was up in the Young and Eglinton area, and she had taken an afternoon nap. She had spoke to a friend about 1230 in the afternoon. Um, she was going to go out for dinner with that friend later in the evening. So the friend showed up at 530. She didn't answer the door. So what happened in that four and a half to five hours is that somebody broke into her residence. People in the area had seen two people walking up to doors, knocking on doors. If people answered, they'd walk away. So it looks like this person knocked on the front door, didn't get an answer because Margaret was sleeping in her bed upstairs, went around, broke in through the back door, um, proceeded to ransack her, her home must have found Margaret sleeping in the bed and attacked her, killed her, and sexually assaulted her. This is, without a doubt, we've discussed many cold cases together, um, and this is by far one that's disturbed me the most um, that we've talked about, because this wasn't um, this was an intentional B&E. They meant to go in there and rob the place, and they didn't realize that she was home. So when they found her, this was a spontaneous act. Of violence. Absolutely. It's, uh, I, I can't believe that that actually happened. I mean, she's an 80 year old woman sleeping in her bed. She may not even have heard them break in. They probably could have taken some valuables and made good their escape. But they, they went to the point where they, they sexually assaulted and murdered an 80 year old woman in her bed. Uh, I, I don't know what type of person would be capable of these sort of things. Yeah. This is a, a sick puppy on her hands here. Um, I guess the next obvious question is how did Margaret's body, how was her body found? So her friend attended at her residence at 530 uh, as they were going to go out for dinner together. She knocked and, and rang the doorbell, called her phone. Um, there was no answer. So she was obviously concerned for Margaret's well-being. She attended the neighbor's house. The neighbor contacted Margaret's granddaughter who attended the residence um, with a key, went in, went through the house, saw that it was ransacked, obviously became very concerned, went upstairs to check on her grandmother and found her deceased in her bed. Yeah, it's a complete cowardly act. And I imagine this is something that you, in your wildest nightmare, wouldn't be able to prepare yourself for as a family member. No, I couldn't imagine what the families had to go through over the years on this. I mean, it's, it's so horrific. It's so awful. And as you said before, I mean, this wasn't someone who was living a dangerous lifestyle or in, involved in in things that may get them in trouble. I mean, she was an 80-year-old woman looking to go out for dinner with her friend at 5.30 in the afternoon. And uh, these people entered her residence, her sanctuary, broke into her residence and attacked her, sexually assaulted her and murdered her. I, I can't imagine anything worse. I kind of talked to you a little bit about this yesterday. Um, this reminds me of a Richard Ramirez type murder. There has to be some issues with, with the person that did this. I mean, um, you would have to think that they're a psychopath. There may have been uh, substance abuse issues. We're not sure, but how you go from stealing a few things to maybe go get your fix to 
setting on an 80 year old woman and murdering her. Um, there's that takes a, a rare person that would be able to do that. And then the other thing, I guess, in terms of time, what, what time did this occur? As I said, we have about a five hour window where it could have occurred. Um, so it could have occurred any time in the afternoon, but it was early in the afternoon. And as I said, this person was out, these people were seen out knocking on doors to see if people were home at their residence. So they were probably looking for places where they thought people may be away at work. Um, nobody would be home. They could break in, steal some valuables, do whatever they needed to with the valuables. Um, but I mean, even the the post-defense conduct with, with this person, I mean, he, he showered, cleaned himself up. Uh, attempted to steal her vehicle so but he couldn't get the garage door open um so tried to steal some booze just you know like like things that you're just it was it's a bizarre set of events it sounds like somebody is uh, completely out of their mind and out of touch that's absolutely correct and there's uh there was a number of people a number of residents that came to us in the community and said we saw gave us a description of people that they saw knocking on doors wandering around the neighborhood um so we're lending ourselves to believe that it was probably these individuals that committed this crime so it could have been one it could have been two the the one person could have been ransacking the home while the other one was upstairs committing the homicide and sexual assault we just don't really know all those details but there, we definitely know that there was one person because we have his DNA. And we sus- that's suspect that there's, there was two, though. There is a good likelihood that there was probably two of them in the home. I want to take a look at that. So this is the rear of the home. As we're looking straight out, that is the street that runs. This is the back of the house. That's right. Okay. So they would have come around the side because it's a corner lot. And they would have come down the back. As you can see, there's large foliage in behind. So it would have given them cover. The only place that they may have been able to be seen is from the house across the street. And that's if someone's looking out and actually paying attention to what's going on in their neighbor's backyard. So this actually provided them with a bit of cover in order to pop the door in the back. The side, they really didn't have much. the The side in front was very open. This is the only place that they could have came for a little bit of cover and been able to break in. As you can see, the foliage goes up over the top, so they couldn't even have been seen from the second floor of houses in behind. They've got a lot of cover back there for if it took a couple of minutes to pop that door or whatever, maybe they had a couple glitches along the way, but they had a few minutes back there where they definitely could have been uh, could have been pretty low profile. That's right. And I mean, at that time of the afternoon, people aren't as on high alert seeing people around. I mean, people always have construction people or maintenance people at their homes and stuff, especially elderly people. So people don't take a real uh, look at, at individuals that are, are doing appear to be doing work around a home. And this next picture here is the actual uh, sliding door that looks like it was popped. Uh, there is a little bit of space there so you can see where there, where that occurred. Let's talk a little bit about the sliding door here and, and how they got in. So it looks as though that they peeled back the, uh, the lip of the door. So they bent it back a bit and were able to, whether they used a screwdriver or another instrument, to get in and pop the latch. As you know, with the, the, the old sliding screen doors, they would come across and they'd latch down. So if you can get something in there and pop that latch yeah, up, it's open. You're free game to get in. So if you, it's it's just like the old cars, right? Where you used to be able to bend back the window, put the coat hanger in, and pull up the the door the to lock. get in. Yeah. And it's very similar with this. They just pried back the uh, the edge of the door. They're able to put a a knife or a um, a screwdriver in, 
pop it up, pop it open, and they were into the house within probably minutes. Maybe not even a minute. Maybe, yeah, maybe not even. And I'm, my chances are that uh, these guys didn't come from a financial background from Harvard, so they may have some experience popping these doors. I would think so. And now whether there was the one psychopath with uh, experience break and enter guy or whether they're both experience break and enter guys that's something that we don't really know but we hope to find out when we arrest these fellas we have a picture of uh what seems to be a knife which is a murder knife that looks like a steak knife to me but let's talk about the the murder weapon we're seeing here this we believe was brought up from the kitchen that he had picked up a weapon in the kitchen and came upstairs now whether he had come upstairs beaten margaret maybe unconscious or whether he went upstairs, saw that Margaret was sleeping, came back downstairs and armed himself with a knife and and uh, the pepper mill and went back up. It could be a, either one. But regardless, he sexually assaulted her. He stabbed her. And then as the, the photo changes, this is a pepper mill. And I'm sure you've, you've utilized these pepper mills in the past. They're heavy. And this one has, which most of them don't have that metal or that bottom liner there that one specifically more heavy than than your average one yeah this is like being beaten with a, a table leg i mean yeah. it's just a, just a vicious vicious crime and I, I can't imagine uh what margaret went through as as he was stabbing her and then the cause of death was actually that he beat her to death so he may have started stabbing her and he or he may have beat her and then stabbed her it's just whatever it was it was it was vicious it was uncalled for and uh, we have to bring these these individuals to justice. When I talked with you guys about MacArthur, you know, and and then when I heard about this case, this is, um, you know, obviously outside of any crimes against children, this is definitely one of the worst um, that I've heard of. And it and it strikes fear in me, knowing I live here in Toronto, and this individual is potentially still out there in Toronto, or we don't know their whereabouts, obviously, but. Um, this is a this is an, another level. This is the worst crime that I've seen in Toronto um, that I can recall. Unfortunately, on the national DNA database for this individual, which again, as we've spoken about numerous times, it's unbelievable that we have this many offender profiles and we have no hits on our national DNA data bank. It's um, it's frustrating, but it just means more police work to find these individuals we're using advances in science and we're going to catch these guys and we can't wait till we do you know using the the podcast as as a crime fighting tool to have a little bit more time with the users so that hopefully something uh, that we're speaking about either you know makes somebody uh want to change and talk about the information that they know because we know that these guys have talked to individuals about this or one of the two should be coming forward to talk about the person that actually did this. The great thing about utilizing the podcast is it, it can reach so many people. I mean, if if someone that knows something in this case moved to wherever in the world, they can still access this. I mean, using the internet now is the way to get things out to as many people as possible. And people can can listen, they can decide if they know something and they can contact us and let us know. And stop and start on their own accord, you know, and I think... I think when we take a look at this case, we look at um, with the DNA that we do have, what's surprising but not really surprising is that with many serial killers out there, 
you know, and people that are committing crimes on this level, they stay undetected sometimes for many, many years, and they're still actively killing people. They're just, they're just hiding the tracks better. We haven't picked this guy up uh, with any other charges at all in the database, right? Across the U.S. and Canada thus far, right? That's right. We've checked it through all the databases, uh, U.S., Canada, the U.K., and we have no hits. Um, so obviously this individual has avoided detection or has avoided being arrested, at least in Canada for anything that that's a threshold offense where his DNA would be ordered. Um, we don't know why some of these people just don't come back. Do they, do they get better at their trade? Are they just scared from what they did once they sober up and, and think what happened last night? How did I do that? I need to scare themselves straight until we arrest these individuals we really don't know what's in their past or what they've been doing for for the years since this murder i find just with this with this particular type of murder it just it would it just would seem so bizarre to be able to do something like this and then just completely stop and you know be a zamboni driver you know and just completely stop or you know be a, a, a camp counselor it just seems like something that's so brutal that this person is extremely sick. It was definitely gratuitous violence. And I mean, as we've said, to make that decision to sexually assault and then stab and bludgeon an 80-year-old woman to death, I just, I can't imagine. I can't imagine what type of person we're dealing with. Let's talk about the suspect. Um, what is known? How old would they be today? What can our users, our viewers, what can they look for um and and how can they help us with this case what we'll be looking for is a a male white uh possibly metis um dark hair lighter eyes as in not brown so it could be uh hazel could be green could be blue they would be in about their mid 40s i would say mid to late 40s uh, no idea what they would be doing as as a source of employment uh could be anything they could be living outside of Toronto. We believe that one of the reasons that they may have tried to steal the car was they were figuring they were going to get out of Dodge back to to wherever they had had arrived in Toronto from. So these are these are just some of the things that we'd be looking for. And I think the biggest thing, as we've touched on in many of the other cases, is we hope that individuals out there who know who did this will step forward. That is always the best way, I think, in solving many of these crimes is people have, wanting to get this off their conscience. If there was a second person there who may still be doing break and enters, he may have been the break and enter person. He may have brought this psychopath along with him to do this break and enter. Well, the first person may still be doing his break and enters. He may be in jail somewhere for break and enters. He may get picked up for break and enters. Come talk to us. Tell us what you know. Let us know who you were with that night. Um, we need to to bring this this individual before our court system. The murderer gets picked up for DUI, anything, and goes into the database. They're caught. So any minute, this person could be caught, and the individual that didn't step forward will be an accessory facing a good chunk of time. Whereas right now, they could step forward and try and give some information to help get this psychopath off the streets. That's exactly it. Uh, he could come in and provide us with the information that we need to arrest this person. We've, we have his DNA, so we can make the connection ourselves. We just need a name to make that connection. The other thing people should really think about is if you know this person did this act, 
you don't know this person won't do that to you or one of your loved ones. You're playing a huge, huge risk by even associating with this person. And that's one of the the things in cold cases. When we do arrest somebody, we go back and try to figure out what they've done a for the years between when the murder occurred, when they arrested, and also for years previous to the homicide that we know about to see if there's anything else that they may have been involved in. I mean, we, we just don't know what type of person we're dealing with until we actually identify them. And Steve, as we talked about with the ETF getting involved, if there is a warrant, this is something that one would want to avoid. How can somebody uh, avoid the ETF coming to their door uh, if a warrant served? If anybody knows what went on, we know that this individual has most likely told other people, whether he's told his spouse, his family members, his friends, come to us and let us know whether it's anonymous or whether you call us directly. Let us know who this individual is. We'll do the work ourselves by connecting the DNA and we can work out something to to take this person into custody in the, the least egregious manner. These are the final remarks that Ron would like to leave for everyone listening. Peg was the family matriarch and her family and many friends to this day feel the pain and hurt of her tragic murder. We recall her loving, warm, outgoing personality and regret that her life, as full as it was, ended sooner than it should have. I guess let's, let's just one last time talk to the uh, viewers. What, what, would, what do you want to say to the viewers here uh, before we go? If anyone knows who is responsible for Margaret's murder, please come forward. Whether it's anonymous, whether it's an email, whether it's a call, whether it's a phone call to one of us, whatever you need to do, just get us that information. We know there's people that know who did this because we're going to find this person. We're, we're going to use their DNA and we're going to eventually track them down. The best course of action is for them to come forward or for you to come forward right now. Thank you very much for being with us today, Steve. Appreciate it. Thanks, Andy. 